0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Cleaving of Christendom, presented by the Institute of Catholic Culture, is a four-part series on the history of the Church in the second millennium. Our speaker, Steve Weidenkampf, a lecturer at Christendom College's Notre Dame Graduate School in Alexandria, Virginia, is the creator and presenter of EPIC. A Journey Through Church History, a 20-part adult faith formation study on the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, available from Ascension Press. More information about EPIC can be found at www.catholictimeline.com. If you'd like to follow along, the slideshow Steve used in his series is available on the audio portion of our website. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, please visit our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org, where you'll find the best in Catholic education available to the public at no charge. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. And ...without condemnation, to call upon thee, O Heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen.
1: Thank you, Father Joseph. Just a few quick announcements, my wife is, is, as we speak, talking with her mother, who is a delivery nurse, and uh, is on her way here, so I said, how are you doing? She said, well, the last contraction I couldn't quite talk through, so um, I, I brought her out with me tonight because I didn't know what was going on, and I wanted to make sure she was with me, and uh, so I could take her to the hospital, so if um, I'm not the one that gets up here at the end of the evening to thank you for coming, you'll know where we are. Uh, so I'll ask you to pray for us, and, uh, and God willing, we'll have a beautiful new child next time I see you. Please
2: welcome back Steve Weidenkopf. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. So we're here for the last uh, of our four-part series on these thousand, the second thousand years in church history. And... Uh, We'll finish up with our time period of revolutions in modernism and then get through the 20th century fairly rapidly tonight. Uh, so I'm excited to be back. And tonight I have with me my wife, Casey, and my daughter, Therese, and my son, Martin. So back from a one-week hiatus from their sickness. They're back this week. So Actually, Marty, Marty's back there clapping. All right, way to go, Marty. So he hasn't heard this talk yet. That's why he's clapping. <laughs> Um, you know, when uh, Sabatino was talking about philosophy and, and the uh, presentations upcoming, especially about Socrates, it reminded me of the very famous question that Socrates asked. Everyone knows Socrates' famous question, right? His most famous question that everyone knows this, right? He, he turns and he looks at his companions and he said, I drank what? <laughs> so, a little humor, a little movie humor it comes from a movie. We'll talk about it later. But if you don't know, Hemlock, all right, we'll go on. Alright, that's why I don't teach philosophy, I teach history instead. Okay, so here we are. Last week we talked about our time period of revolutions and modernism, and this is the period of time from 1700 to the early part of the 20th century. And We looked at the rise of of the Enlightenment and the, the difference that occurred and the change really that occurred in philosophy at that time. And we saw how, you know, a Catholic understanding of philosophy is philosophy is, is is a method of observation, you know, it's reason based on observation. And we saw how modern philosophy changes that and divorces really thinking and divorces philosophical teaching from reality and places it really in the confines of the mind. And so we see that as a result as a result of that change in, in position in in the view of philosophy, then what happens is that over time Europe begins to embrace this this change in society. Whereas before, we could say Europe was really a, a God-centered society. I mean, we, had, we looked at during the Crusaders the and scholars, Europe is going into an age of reason, really, where you have you know man, it's a man-centered society now. So instead of have everyone looking at ourselves, right? We're looking at a man-centered society versus a God-centered society, and I think we kind of see that today, right? I mean, that's pretty much the foundation, I think, of our own society, don't you think? That, that really we are a man-centered society, you know, we're focused on, I think I'm cutting in and out, yeah. Um, we're focused more on ourselves than we are on God. So we'll switch. Is or is this good? No, Zon? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so we went. So man, Europe is moving away from its centeredness. It's moving away from its roots. It's moving away from the Catholic faith, and we see this really kind of come to a climax, so to speak, in the, this period of revolutions and modernism in France with the French Revolution, and that's really what what uh, is a very important event in the history of Europe, which really kind of helps uh, underst- helps explain what's going on in europe today and even how it affected the church it affected the church greatly and we'll look at that so the the story here to the french revolution is the king as we all know at the time of france is king uh, louis the 16th and louis is a devout catholic he's a very good man actually he just had one central problem which was which was a very uh, difficult problem to have as a leader of a nation he was he was afflicted with chronic indecision so, which if, if your country is, you know, in a period of time of prosperity and things are going well, that's probably not a crippling problem in a monarch. But if your country is in the midst of a huge crisis, to have a monarch or a leader who can't make decisions uh, is a big problem, right? I mean, the hallmark of a bad leader is not someone who makes bad decisions. The hallmark of a bad leader is someone who makes no decisions, Right, and just kinda of lets things happen. And that's really unfortunately what Louis the Sixteenth did. Now, as we know, Louis was married to Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette herself, a very devoted Catholic. She never, ever, 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 ever said the phrase, Let them eat cake. That is a complete historical myth. It was perpetuated by people who disliked the church and disliked the monarchy in France. She never uttered the phrase. It's a complete myth. She actually, the reverse of that is true. She was actually very concerned about the people in France and especially during this time in France. There was um, a difficulty in terms of food and, and there were poor people and people starving in Paris. And she, of her own accord and from the world treasury, set up soup kitchens throughout the city of Paris in order to help feed the poor. She was very concerned about the poor. And so she was not someone who would just flippantly uh, dismiss the poor and not care for them at all. It was motivated by her faith and her love in Jesus that she did these things. So a fantastic woman who's had her reputation spoiled um, in history through this, this propaganda that's just horribly untrue. So what happens in France here is that in the year 1789, France is in the midst of a financial crisis, a huge financial crisis. And the reason why the the country of France is in a financial crisis is because they participated in a war halfway around the world trying to help a small little nation become independent. That would be us. That would be our nation, the United States of America. So France entered the war on our side, fought against Britain, and they really bankrupted themselves in the process. And so France was in the midst of this huge financial crisis. And in order to help, try to solve it, uh, the king called together the Estates General, which is a body in France which hadn't met uh, for a long period of time. So he calls them together. Unfortunately, this uh, Estates General, instead of actually trying to help the situation, makes it uh, revolutionary elements within the Estates General kind of take it over, and they motivate the they they uh, m- uh, manipulate rather the agenda. For revolutionary cause. And so what happens is we know in July, on July 14th of 1789, revolutionary elements within Paris storm the city uh, jail, the Bastille and hence the revolution has come to uh, uh, France. King Louis XVI, as well as Marie Antoinette and the royal family, are captured by these revolutionary elements and held in captivity. Uh, they're officially overthrown by the French uh, revolutionary government in 1792. and Eventually, in 1793, they're actually executed. Now, what happens is as these revolutionaries take control of the government in France. They begin to totally dismantle and totally change Francis, French society. And what they first do is they go after the Catholic Church, uh, obviously a bedrock of French society for many centuries, uh, dating all the way back to the 5th century. The Catholic Church in France have always had this really unique and special relationship, but these revolutionary elements begin to dismantle the entire structure and the entire linkage that existed between France and the church. One of the first things they do is they pass this, what's called the Civil Constitution of the Clergy. And what the Civil Constitution for the, of the Clergy was, was that it separated the church in France from Rome. And we've seen this before, right? And we see this last week. We talked about Henry VIII in England, where he separates the church in England from Rome. And so the, uh, the revolutionary government separates the church in France from Rome. The government assumed control of the church. Priests were actually considered state employees during this period of time. And they actually required all clergy to take an oath of fidelity to the government. Now, where have we seen this? Right? We just saw this last week when we looked at uh, England. Now, it's interesting, though, unlike in England, where we had the vast majority of bishops siding with the monarchy in, in Henry's uh, case of, of trying to receive an annulment from his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, in France, the converse is true. The opposite happens. Actually, most of the French bishops remain faithful to Rome. So we know that of the uh, 160 bishops in France at the time, only seven take the oath of fidelity to the government, only seven. So the vast majority of French bishops maintain their faith and maintain their ties to Rome. Now we know too that these revolutionary elements become even more radical in 1792 when they issue uh, forth the Reign of Terror, where we have within, especially the, the confines of Paris, but even all throughout France, this horrific time when people are arrested on all kinds of charges, given you know really just not any sort of due process, and executed for the simplest of of, uh, of reasons, or even no reason at all. And so we do know, too, that during this time in 1792, there was actually a Catholic uprising in one region of France known as the Vendee region, which is in southwestern France. There was a large Catholic uprising where Catholics gathered together into an army to try to fight these revolutionary elements. Unfortunately, they weren't overly successful and were violently crushed, and tens of thousands of Catholics in the southwest of France died as a result of that. It's one of the few... Uh, elements of the French Revolution, of the story of the French Revolution, that's hardly ever told. I mean, how many of you knew that there was this Catholic uprising during the French Revolution? Not many, a few, yeah, um, but not many at all, because it's just not, what, it's not part of the, the regular narrative that's told about the uh, revolution. Now, in 1793, things really ratchet up, and the persecution of the church becomes even more severe. Again, this is the year, as I mentioned earlier, where the king and queen are, are both executed in the same year, different months, but executed in the same year. What this revolutionary government does is it decides, as I mentioned earlier, to divorce France completely from the church. And how it does it is through different means. One of the first things they do is they change the calendar. So they completely get rid of all the standard months uh, in the Gregorian calendar, which had been ushered in by the church throughout Europe. They get rid of those months. They replace them with the revolutionary months. They change the, the days of the week. They actually extend the week from seven days to ten days. So most of us were thinking, well, that might not be so bad. Maybe we get like a four-day weekend or something every week, right? Now, I mean, they extended it to 10 days so that you could work more. It was, it was not an effort for more relaxation and more recreation. It was to, in order to work more and to produce more for the government. Um, We also know during this time that they turned the churches, Catholic churches into temples of reason. Most of us have probably heard the story of the prostitute who is crowned goddess of reason and placed upon the bishop's chair in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. I mean, just horrific things going on during this period of time. Priests, religious, and Catholic laity were rounded up and put into prison. Uh, There was a group of priests, actually, and religious lay brothers who were arrested and sent and put into these prison ships in the port city of Rochefort and they're known as the Martyrs of Rochefort. There's ultimately 827 of these priests and religious who were imprisoned on these ships because they refused to take the oath of fidelity to the revolutionary government. Of those 827 priests and religious who were put on these ships, 542 died. So over half of these men died because of their, they maintained their faith in Christ and in the church. In January of 1995, John Paul II beatified 64 of these men, and they're known as the Martyrs of Rochefort. So a fantastic number of, of martyrs who witnessed to the point of their to their lives for the faith and for the church in France during this time. Ultimately, the Reign of Terror comes to an end through a very interesting event, a very spiritual event. There were these 16 Carmelite nuns who were in the city of Compiegne, and when the Reign of Terror began in 1792, they offered themselves. To Christ to God as a Holocaust and what I mean by that is they prayed to God and they said this horrible reign of terror has come upon our country and if it requires us to sacrifice our lives in order for this reign of terror to end then we freely offer it to you Christ and to you God to whatever will your will is let it be done but they said if that if it needs to be if this is what it takes to end this then we offer ourselves freely and so in the year 1794 they were arrested Because simply because they were nuns, because they were, um, and some of them were novices, but it's because they were members of this religious community of the Carmel. They were arrested, sent to Paris, and from the mother superior down to the most recent novice were guillotined publicly. Sixteen of these of these beautiful holy women. Ten days after their martyrdom, the Reign of Terror ended. So really, I mean, uh, a Catholic historian looks at that event and sees that the Lord. Really, that was his will. That was his will for their lives, to, to accept their sacrifice, and he ended the reign of terror in France. Now, it would be many, many years, obviously, before any kind of peace and civility would return to France, and we could even argue that maybe it really hasn't returned yet to France, but, um, and we're still hoping and praying for that. But definitely the active part of the reign of terror was over uh, 10 days after their death, and they're known as the 16 Carmelite nuns of Compiegne. So the reign of terror comes to an end in France, and now the church is really obviously racked greatly by what happened in France and very, very affected by it. Also during this time, as we get into the latter part of the 18th century into the 19th century, we see the rise of a heresy, and a very insidious heresy, which is the second part of our time period here, modernism. And modernism is a very unique heresy. It's different than all the other heresies that have come before in the history of the church. The one thing that's interesting about modernism is that modernism seeks to attack the fundamental meaning of the faith. It attacks the faith from within. And I'll give an example of this to help us understand what modernism is. Because it's kind of, it is really difficult to really understand what modernism is, because it's different than, as I mentioned, different than other heresies. I mean, before. You had heresies like Arianism, which denied the divinity of Christ. You had Arius, who was preaching. You know, Jesus is just a creature. He's not not the son of God. He's not divine. He's the son of God, but he's a creature of God. He's not divine. All right, very easy, very pointed teaching. It can be rejected quite easily by the church. Modernism is a little more insidious. Because again, as I mentioned, it changes the fundamental meaning of the faith. It attacks the faith from within. So, an example of this, and this really takes root and takes uh, takes root and grows, especially in the area of scripture scholarship during this period of time as we move into the 18th and 19th century. And even still, it's, it, there's some trace elements of it we can still see, unfortunately, today in some certain areas of scholarship in the church, especially scripture scholarship. But here's an example of what a modernist would do. So we all know in the scriptures the story of the feeding, the mirac- miraculous story of the feeding of the five thousand, right? Jesus has a few loaves, a couple of fish, and miraculously, you know, he creates enough food for everyone, you 5,000-plus know, people to eat, and eat to their fill enough so that there's leftover. Right? We're all familiar with that scripture story. Well, a modernist would say, well, that event happened, but here's really what really happened. What really happened at that event was, unrecorded in the scriptures, people who came to that event had with them their own food. And what Jesus, or some people did, and what Jesus did was he got those people who had food to share their food with those who didn't have food. All right, that's really what happened. All right, so the miracle is not the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the kind of miracle of the sharing. All right, Jesus is a nice guy who gets everybody to share. All right, it's not recorded in the Scriptures, but we just kind of know that. How we know that, we don't know, but we just know that he got them all to share. That's the, and really what it does is the point is that a modernist seeks to strip away any notion of the supernatural from the faith. Basically to water down the faith, get rid of the, the divine element of the faith, get rid of anything that's supernatural. So miracles become, they get reinterpreted and devoid of their fundamental divine and supernatural meaning. That's what modernism in essence does. And unfortunately, it really took root in Scripture scholarship, as I mentioned, even in elements of philosophy and theology in the Church. And it really was a significant problem, especially in the 19th century and so and in the early 20th century. And so we have popes, whom the Holy Spirit brings to the Church during this time, who directly address this heresy. And one pope who did so is the one listed here on, uh, or you see on your slide, Pope Pius IX. And Pope Pius IX addressed modernism specifically through the calling of an ecumenical council, through the calling of the First Vatican Council which meant very briefly from 1869 to 1870. Now, I'm sure the question in your mind is, why did it only meet for one year? Um, were the, the council fathers just that uh, efficient and effective in what they wanted to accomplish, or was there something else going on? Well, no, it ended in 1870. It was actually kind of suspended almost indefinitely because there was a war that broke out in 1870, the Franco-Prussian War. And so the French and and German bishops wanted to obviously leave Rome and go back to their countries and deal with the pastoral situation of their countries being at war. And also there were French troops... In Rome who were guarding the Pope during this time from Italian nationalists And they all were recalled back to France to fight the war So the Pope recognized that, you know, things are not really stable here in Rome So we're going to just kind of suspend the council Actually one of the first, um, it wasn't really ended until the Second Vatican Council One of the first actions of the Second Vatican Council was to officially close the First Vatican Council So again, remember things move slowly in the church, it takes a little bit of time um, it, But eventually it got closed, you know, we had closure on the council so, one of, what the First Vatican Council did was it produced only two documents because it was, you know, only met for a short period of time. One document was on faith, reason, and revelation. And this is a document that really, uh, kind of goes after modernism and basically illustrates for us what the church has constantly taught and has most recently taught through the um, pontificate of John Paul II. That obviously faith and reason are united, faith and reason are complementary, faith and reason are not separate, they're not opposite. You know, one does not trump the other, they both have as their same source. God, As John Paul II wrote in his encyclical Fetus et Ratio, he said that faith and reason are like two wings upon which the, the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. Faith and reason are like two wings upon which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. So we need both right we can't just just you know reject the supernatural nature of of what happens in the scriptures or through the through the uh, miracles you know they're they're there our faith can can accommodate that our reason obviously can accommodate it as well that document also talked about how there is a god-given objective truth one of the fruits of modernism is the rejection of objective truth in essence, what modernism helps to foster and what enlightened thinking helps to foster is this understanding of, of you know, subjective morality. The morality, what is, what is a right, is kind of dependent upon the individual. The individual gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. You know, there's nothing that's God-given objective. So you know, if you think, I think abortion is wrong, but you, know, you might think abortion is not wrong. So it's not wrong or, or right, it's just whatever we decide to think. Right? I mean, doesn't our modern world kind of operate that way? Right, I mean, as our, our Holy Father, the current Holy Father has called it, we live on a, under a dictatorship of relativism, that everything is relative. It's all subjective based on the individual. Where did that come from? That comes from taking away our God-centeredness and fo- forcing it as a, uh, on ourselves, and a change in fundamental philosophical thinking. Instead of looking outwardly to God and looking at the world and trying to discern what we know about God from the world, it's bringing that, that questioning in and looking at ourselves and thinking we're God, in essence. We set ourselves off, up to be that. So it addressed this whole na- notion that, again, there is God-given objective truth. There are things that are just intrinsically evil. There's no circumstance. There's nothing that can change the fact that these, these actions should not be performed that they are evil in and of themselves. And that's, again, something our modern world greatly struggles with. The other document that came out of the First Vatican Council was a document on the role of the Holy Father, and in particular, the charism of the gift of infallibility. And so it was a document that really laid out the conditions for when the Holy Father uses that charism of infallibility on his own and provides for all kinds of different uh, criteria. So, you know, some of those criteria it has to be a serious matter, has to be a matter of faith and doctrine or faith and uh, morals. He has to be speaking as the universal shepherd of the church, not just as the bishop of Rome. He has to definitively say that it's a teaching that's to be, to be held definitively by all the faithful. So these are all very important criteria, um, and it's, it's obviously infallibility is something that's very much misunderstood by especially our separated pro- brothers and sisters um, as Protestants. They really don't understand what that carries and means. It doesn't mean that the Holy Father can wake up tomorrow and declare that everybody has to be a Washington Redskins fan. As much as we might like that, you know, it's, it, that's not true because it's not a matter of faith and morals, right? Although for some people there's a fine line there maybe uh, in the D.C. area. So another way in which the, po- the, uh, the church addressed this heresy of modernism is through the pontificate of, uh, of St. Pius X. And St. Pius X was uh, obviously a holy man, a fantastic man, a great priest, a wonderful pastoral pope really. A, one, a man who, even though he became pope, was elected pope, really still focused very much on being a pastor. He was a pastor of souls. That really was his vocation. He really enjoyed doing that and was fantastic at it. He's also well-known for the pope who allowed children at the age of reason to receive communion. So he's the one who kind of changed that, that whole structure and, and when that sacrament would be received. How he addressed the, the heresy of modernism is he wrote a, an encyclical in 1907 uh, Pascende Dominici Grigis, where he talks about modernism and condemns it, but he gives it kind of its, its uh, moniker, so to speak, that we use when we talk about it in theology. It, he called it the synthesis of all heresy, the synthesis of all heresy, so it, was, it's, it takes all of the basically what he 's saying is it takes all of the heretical the fundamental notion of all the heresies that have come before it, and it kind of it 's the culmination of it, so to speak. So all this all this error that has come before in the history of the church is now really kind of synthesized and present here in this this heresy of modernism. And so what he specifically did was as a result of modernism is he issued forth a directive in 1910 that all clergy who taught theology or scripture or philosophy were required to take an oath against modernism in order to teach. In, in as a faculty member in those subjects. And so that was something that was present from 1910 all the way up until uh, the 1960s. So that oath against modernism was something that was done away with as a result of the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. So that's not something that currently uh, professors have to do, although some do take an oath of fidelity to the magisterium um, a- as they as they should. So we come to the end of our time period here of revolutions and modernism. The church is under attack intellectually; she's under attack, even we could, in a certain sense, spiritually. There's a lot, and politically, there's a lot of change that's going on in Europe during this time. The rise of nation—we've had nation states arise. We have a lot of revol- socialist revolution that's occurring uh, in the 19th century, and things are really going to fundamentally change as we, for the church and for Western world as a whole as we move into our next time period of a world at war, and this obviously is the time period covering the the two world wars in the 20th century in Europe, 1914 to 1957. Um, This is a period of time when we see the rise of National Socialism, Fascism, and Communism, and with those political ideologies comes a persecution of the church, because what those ideologies all profess fundamentally, what they all have at their foundation, is the subjection of the individual to the state. And so anything that prevents the individual from being subjected completely and totally to the state, like religion would, like the Catholic Church would, is an enemy of these political ideologies. And so we'll see fascism and National Socialism and communism, we'll talk a little bit about it here in a moment, attack the faith, and that's why they do so. They, they attack the faith because it prevents the total subjection of the individual. They, all of the, you know, the Church obviously respects the inherent dignity and worth of every single human person, um, as as a human being created in God's image and likeness, not as a cog in the tool of the of the political machine, but as an individual. And so these uh these groups don't like that. So first we'll look at what happens here in Mexico in the early 20th century. There's a socialist, anti-religious, revolutionary government that comes to power in Mexico in the early 20th century, and they begin to radically change Mexican society as well as. Uh, really attack the Catholic Church. To give you one example of how bad things are in Mexico at this time, there was a governor of one Mexican province. His name was Thomas Cannibal. He had three children. He named them Lenin, Lucifer, and Satan. So that's not really a name you want to kind of grow up to as a child, either one of those names. Um, but this gives you a data point, a sense, as to really how bad things are in Mexico at this time. And the governmental authorities have really embraced this evil Evil notion of socialism and communism, and it really infected all of society. During this period of time in the 20s and 30s in Mexico, the Catholic Church was outlawed. Bishops were actually stripped of their citizenship and expelled from the, from the country in 1927. Clergy were arrested simply for being clergy. Those who remained or who weren't arrested had to go into hiding and go underground in terms of working uh, for the people and continuing their pastoral ministry. And obviously there were many martyrs during this time as well. There's one very famous martyr that many of us might have heard of during this time. He was a Jesuit. He's a Blessed Miguel Pro. Blessed Miguel Pro was arrested on trumped-up charges of trying to assassinate the Mexican president, and his the government wanted to make a, an example out of Blessed Miguel Pro. They wanted to uh, show this, the country that if you maintain your faith, if you continue to believe in the Catholic Church, which was outlawed, then this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be executed. He was sentenced to die. And so what they decided to do was record his execution. So they invited all these journalists to come and take pictures of his, of his execution and to widely publish them so that the people would, would uh, you know, basically apostatize and give up their faith. And many of us have probably seen the picture of Blessed Miguel Pro uh, right before his execution. He's led out to be executed, he puts his arms out in the form of a cross, and right before he's shot, he utters the phrase, Vivo Cristo Re, long live Christ the King. And this picture was taken and widely distributed throughout the country. As you know, If you follow the faith, if you continue to maintain membership in the Catholic Church, this is what could happen to you. Well, the picture was circulated, obviously, around the country, and the Catholic faithful were so attracted to the picture because it's, it's, it's a, a picture that gives hope. It gives courage in the face of this severe persecution. It shows and illustrates the great love that Miguel Pro had for Christ and and so much so that he would go, you know, willingly and and suffer this martyr's death in a very heroic way. And so it became so popular and people so sought the picture and it had the opposite effect of what the government wanted. And so the government then had to ban the picture. (laughs) So the moral of the story is don't mess with God because he'll turn the tables on you. It's estimated that the, during this time in the 20s and 30s in Mexico, there were um, anywhere from 250 to 300,000 people killed as a result of the of socialist, anti-religious government that had taken power in Mexico. It was a horrendous time. The 20th century really is a century of bloodshed, as we all, as we all know and have heard of. Obviously, also during this time in Russia, there was a Bolshevik revolution led by Lenin and others. In uh, 1917, they take over Russia. They had then, they're obviously, they're atheists, they attack religion. In 1918, they passed a decree against religion separating the church and state. The Catholic Church was deprived of all of its land and property and legal rights in Russia. By 1922, it's estimated that over 8,000 priests, monks, and nuns had been executed by the Bolshevik regime. So over 8,000 monks, priests, and nuns executed simply, again, for being Catholic and members of the church. During this time, also in the 20th century, middle part of the 20th century, we have the, uh, a, revo- a civil war, really, that breaks out in Spain uh, between revolutionary elements and more conservative elements. And during Spain, it's estimated during this time, during the Civil War, that 7,000 priests and religious were murdered during this three-year Spanish Civil War. We even have accounts in the Spanish Civil War of priests being arrested and publicly executed by being thrown to wild beasts. This is 20th century Spain, something that hadn't been seen in the world since the Roman Empire. Could you imagine that? I mean, think about it. It's not very long ago. It's only 70-some-odd years ago that you had literally priests in Spain being sent and being torn to death by wild animals. Just horrific. I mean, really, if you want a century in which Satan was really working, the 20th century is most assuredly it. He was at his height, so to speak, during that century. It's just horrific what went on in all these different nations. Obviously, what happens in Germany through uh, Adolf Hitler and the rise of the National uh, Socialists is an attack also against the Church and against others as well that the Nazis were were um, you know against the Jews in particular. And when the Nazis come to power and Hitler comes to power in Germany, the Pope at the time is Pope P- Pius XI. Pope Pius XI sends or writes an encyclical uh, in 1937 called Mit Brenniger Zorga, or it, it usually translated in English as With Burning Concern. Sometimes you'll see it With Burning Sorrow. It just depends on how the translator wants to translate it. But this is the only encyclical in the history of the Church that was written in German. This was written specifically in German. It was written to the bishops and the people of Germany. It was um, sent into Germany to be read by all the Catholic faithful and others in Germany. It was drafted by the Vatican Secretariat of the State at the time, Secretary of State, a man by the name of Eugenio Pacelli. Eugenio Pacelli will become Pius XII here. We'll talk about that in a moment. In this encyclical, the Holy Father condemns National Socialism, and in particular condemns National Socialist racial policies. Uh, He calls them anti-Christian, the adoption of these racial policies that the Nazis had specifically against the Jewish people. He doesn't mention Adolf Hitler by name, but what he does is he writes about National Socialism and the whole political structure of National Socialism and says that someone who would advance the state over the individual, someone who would advance an agenda that calls for really the exclusion of people, the destruction of a certain kind of people, is, as I quote from the encyclical, a prophet of nothingness, a mad prophet possessed of repulsive arrogance. I think a more apt description of Adolf Hitler has probably never been written. You know, that he was, I mean, again, not by name, but everyone understood. When you read this encyclical, you know exactly who he's talking about. Again, a prophet of nothingness, a mad prophet possessed of repulsive arrogance. Ultimately, the publication of the encyclical was banned in Germany by the National Socialists. Pius XI will die in 1939. His replacement, as I mentioned earlier, Pius XII, is Eugenio Pacelli. Now, Bocelli was very, very aware of what was going on in Germany during this period of time because he had been Apostolic Nuncio, or basically the Pope's diplomatic representative to Germany, in the early part of the 20th century, right before the end of the First World War and then for a few years, about a decade or so after the end of the First World War. He had been there. He knew what was going on. He saw the early beginnings of Hitler and the National Socialist Party. While he was in Germany, he spoke out against National Socialism. It's recorded that he made 44 public speeches between the years 1917 and 1929. Obviously towards the end of that period of time, he spoke out against National Socialism in the vast majority of those speeches. Elected Pope in 1939, the Germans reacted this way in the Berlin newspaper, the editorial when it recorded the news of Pacelli's election, wrote this about their response. It said, The election of Cardinal Pacelli is not accepted with favor in Germany. Because he was always opposed to Nazism. So the Germans and the Nazis knew very most assuredly, as soon as he was elected, who they were dealing with. They knew that this was not a friend. This was not someone who was going to support them. This was someone who was going to actively work against them. They knew that at the time. Obviously, Hitler and the National Socialists wanted to persecute the church, and they, they did so. Many, many martyrs during this period of time, as most of us know, the great stories of the martyrs of, uh, in the different concentration camps, like St. Edith Stein, for example, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. We see uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish priest who gave his life for another man in Auschwitz. Uh, just a fantastic number of people who maintained their faith and were killed simply for being Catholic, simply for holding to the faith, uh, the one true faith. Hitler definitely was against the church. He was recorded as saying once, one is either a Christian or a German, one can't be both. It kind of gives you a sense of where he was coming from. Again, this is what all these political ideologies do, is they subject the individual to the state, and they attack anything which seeks to have an alternative loyalty from the individual. So this is why he went after the church. Now, there are many in our recent society, in modern society in the last couple of years, who have attacked Pius XII uh, for his actions during the Second World War. There's many different uh, forms of this attack. You know, Most attacks come uh, from the perspective of, well, he didn't do enough while he was pope to help stop the National Socialism, to help stop the Holocaust. He didn't speak out. He didn't do enough. And these are all just patently historical lies. I mean, most of them have been refuted Uh, quite well over the last several years by a multitude of different books. I recommend one for you here in a moment. But we know for a fact that Pius did speak out, and he spoke out when he could. For example, in 1941 and 1942, he gave a Christmas address that was broadcast on Vatican Radio, and the New York Times, of all esteemed publications, had this to say in 1941 about Pius's Christmas address. This is what they wrote. The voice of Pius XII is a lonely voice in the silence and darkness enveloping Europe. He is about the only ruler left on the continent of Europe who dares to raise his voice at all. The Pope put himself squarely against Hitlerism. That's a pretty ringing endorsement of, of you know, Pius XII and what he was doing. He obviously was speaking out against what the Nazis stood for and what they wanted to do, what their agenda pursued. Now, he had to walk a fine line, which is difficult for many of us who weren't alive during that time to really understand what, what I mean by that, but he had to choose when he could speak out very forcefully and when he couldn't. He was afraid, you know, and I think it was a legitimate fear that if he spoke out too forcefully, that that would bring more reprisals against the Jews from the Nazis. And he knew this not just as kind of a feeling, but he knew it from actual fact. Because what happened in 1942 is the bishops in in Holland spoke out very forcefully against the deportation of Jews from the Netherlands. And as a result of that, the Nazis ratcheted up their persecution of the Jews, and it's estimated that 79% of the Jewish population in Holland was deported to the death camps during, during the Second World War. 79%. It's the most of any country in Europe, and it's the one country where the Catholic bishops really spoke out extremely forcefully about what was going on in their country. And so the Pope knew that he had to walk that fine line. He definitely had to walk the fine line. It used to be, for example, that the, the Nazis, if you, had, if you could show you had a baptismal certificate, even if, if it had been issued fakely from the church, which Pius XII did allow that and did approve for that to happen, that you know priests could issue fake baptismal certificates to Jews so they could at least present a document to the Nazis saying that they were Christian even though they really weren't, uh, in order to save their lives. Uh, it's, it, we do know that in, in uh, Holland, it used to be their, their policy, the Nazis, that they wouldn't arrest those of Jewish, Jewish ethnicity who, or who, who had converted to uh, the faith, if you could show a document. Well, after the Dutch, Dutch bishops spoke out, they changed that policy. And it didn't matter whether you were baptized or not. If you were a Jew or you had Jewish ethnicity to a certain level, you were arrested and deported to the camps. This is how St. Edith Stein, why she and her sister were arrested and sent to the camps. She was living in Holland at the time, and uh, you know she was obviously a Jew who had converted to the faith, legitimately in her case. Um, and the Nazis didn't care, rounded her up and sent her off to Auschwitz where she perished along with her sister. So, again, it was, it was a difficult moment in the, in the history of the world, difficult moment in the history of the Church. And so we have to keep all that in mind in the historical context when we look about it, when, we, when we think about it. So, again, some of these authors that attacked uh, Pius XII, attack him because he didn't speak out. We've seen that that's not true. They say he didn't do enough, also not true. As I mentioned, he allowed for the issuance of fake baptismal certificates. He actually instructed all of his apostolic nuncios in German-occupied countries to work with the local bishops as best as they could to try to save as many Jews as they could. Uh, He allowed Jews to be hid in his own papal uh, summer residence at Castel Gandolfo in Rome. He was very active in helping the Jewish community in Rome uh, through all of their sufferings from first the the fascists in Italy and then as well as the National Socialists in Germany when they took over. Ultimately, one Jewish historian has estimated that by the actions of Pius XII and the Catholic Church during the Second World War, 860,000 Jews were saved. 860,000 Jews. So it's, if you do the math, it's about 30% of those who survived the Holocaust. So it's a significant number. So to say that Pius did nothing or that he was Hitler's pope, as one book uh, was even titled, is just, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's beyond scandalous. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous at a certain level. It's, it's historically untrue. And those who usually attack Pius do so because they have another agenda in mind. They're using Pius in order to attack the Catholic Church as a whole. They're using pious to attack the papacy as a whole. You know, they don't like the fact that the church teaches that there's God-given objective truth. They don't like the fact that the church teaches certain things cannot be done in the world and shouldn't be done out of respect for the, the worth and dignity of every human person. And so they attack the church through these trumped-up, historical, false anti-stories, um, which get a lot of press, uh, and are you know uh, documentaries are made out of them and things like this, and, but they're all historically false. If you want a really good book that kind of discusses this whole uh, matter that's very easy to read, It kind of goes through a a good amount of research and detail, is a book called The Myth of Hitler's Pope by Rabbi David Dahlin. I'll pass this around so you can write it down if you want. But this is a fantastic work. It's written, obviously, not by a Catholic historian, but by a, a Jewish historian who set out to, you know, was at first, he admits, convinced that everything he had heard in modernity about Pius XII was true. That, you know, he really was Hitler's pope, that he didn't like the Jews, he didn't do enough. And then he actually began to do the independent research, and he saw that that's just not true. That story is false. And so he decided to write this book as kind of a, a way to help illustrate, you know, to defeat all of these attacks against Pius uh, in the New World. So we come to the end of our time period here of a world at war. This was a century, as I mentioned, of just huge death and destruction. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal to, to kind of just look at the statistics and see how many people perished as a result of these two horrific conflicts, um, the First and Second World War. Just as one data point in terms of just the numbers of people that we're talking about here, um, if you go back to the First World War in July of 1916, the British embarked on a, an offensive on the Western Front known as the First Battle of the Somme. In the Battle of the Somme in July of 1916, on the first day, the first day of fighting, the British Army lost 60,000 casualties, or they suffered 60,000 casualties. That's killed, wounded, and missing in action. 60,000 men, one day of fighting. That's just, I mean, it's horrific to think about. I mean, we, we can't even really process those kind of numbers you know, it's just, her, I mean, you can go to parts of Britain and you can see, you know, different little towns. and They have these monuments to those who died in the Great War. And it's just, you know, rows and rows and rows and rows of names. I mean, whole villages lost every able-bodied man in their entire village as a result of the war. And it's just horrific what went on. So and that's just you know, one battle in the First World War, let alone what happened once you had the, the concept of total war um, you know, that really uh, shaped how things were done in the Second World War. So obviously Europe here, and even the world, is in need of the saving message of Jesus Christ when we come to the, to the close or to near the end of the 20th century. And the Church recognized that, and how the Church recognized that is through the calling of an ecumenical council the Second Vatican Council under the pontificate of Blessed John the Twenty-third. So that takes us to our time period here, of the new springtime. And this runs from 1958 to 1977. And it's a time of renewal, or a time of really the hope of renewal, not only in the Church, but also in the whole world, and particularly the Western world. That's really what John the Twenty-third wanted to happen from the Second Vatican Council, is he wanted a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Church so that the Church could go forth into the modern world and like I said, bring the saving message of Jesus to a world that was wounded, a world that was severely wounded as a result of this warfare that had gone on, a society that really needed the divine physician. And so John Twenty-Third calls the council. Again, he really wants the council to be a council that ushers in a new form, a new wave of evangelization, that the church would take the gospel message into the world, into this modern world in a new way. He wanted it to be a new Pentecost. He saw the Second Vatican Council as an opportunity for the Church to present her teachings to the modern world in a new way. And that's really what was the whole focus of the Councils. He wanted the Council to focus on the presentation of the truth. Most Councils in the history of the Church before this time had been called because there was some major heresy or some major uh, discipline question that needed to be addressed by all the bishops. And this was the first time, really, a unique time in the history of the Church where those conditions really were... You know, weren't present. There wasn't really a need, any kind of heretical, you know, major heresy that needed to be addressed. There was really no major discipline issue that needed to be addressed. So he wanted, though, the council to be about presenting the truth to the modern world. This is what he wrote. He said, The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another. So what he's saying by this is that he wanted the council, he wanted the church during the council to focus on how to present her teachings to a world that is so very different from what had come before. Because of the effects of the Enlightenment, because of the way of the philosophical shift in thinking, the Church now has to present her teachings in a different way. You know, it's no longer really good enough to just say, well, this is what we teach, in essence. This is what John the Twenty Third is saying. We have to now answer why. why do we, and not, not to say that didn't happen before, but the emphasis has to be more now on the why. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we follow this person, Jesus Christ? Why do we have the sacraments? And what does it mean to be Catholic? Why should everybody be Catholic? You know, these are the questions that he wanted the church to wrestle with and to find new ways in which to present the teachings. You know, modern man is different. We have to find new ways, invigorative ways. We have to use media, you know, all kinds of new media that hadn't been available to the church before to really embrace that and use that to, to present the gospel message to the world. And he also said, too, that he wanted the council to be more pastoral in character. And what he meant by that was that the council was not going to issue forth any kind of condemnations, uh, it wasn't going to anathematize you know, this, that, or other teaching, not because you know, an erroneous teaching doesn't need to be anathematized, but because really the focus is a, of a more positive focus than a negative focus. And this is what he wrote. He said, The church considers that she meets the needs of the present day by demonstrating the validity of her teaching rather than by condemnations. So, again, he's recognizing the modern man is different. Modern man just doesn't accept it if you say, don't do this. You have to ex- you have to explain. You have to demonstrate, you know, this is why we believe this because it's true and walk through uh, that with modern man. I think I mentioned before I used to work for the church in Denver, and I, I taught marriage preparation courses to engage couples. And, you know, it's modern engaged couples are a little different than engaged couples that probably have come in generations past. And it's not just, you know, I could get up there and if I just said, well, you know, the church has contraception, can't be used in marriage, so don't do it. How many are going to listen to me? Not many, right? Not most, right? Why? Because, first of all, that just, okay, that's not really meaningful to say that might be true, but it's not meaningful. So I have to find a way to explain that teaching in a way that makes sense to them, that gives them the truth and beauty of human sexuality, the truth and beauty of marriage, so that it's, it becomes something that they want to, to follow, not something they have to follow. I mean, that's really kind of the essence of what John Twenty-Third is saying here. Modern man is different. We have to find new ways in which to evangelize him. Ultimately, the council produces 16 documents. Of those documents, there are four major constitutions, uh, which you see here uh, on the liturgy, on the church, on divine revelation, and then on the church in the modern world as well. And if you've never read those four major constitutions of the Second Vatican Council, I highly encourage you to do so. You can easily find them on the web for free. Um, you can go to the Vatican website, go to EWTN's website, all kinds of websites will have the documents. Uh, you can get the book if you want through Amazon of the council documents. But take the time, especially to read these four major constitutions. They are fantastic documents. They're, you know, It doesn't really require a PhD or master's degree in theology to read them, although that might help in some sections, but... It's easy, you know, if you, if, you don't, if you have a question about one of the, something in the in the document, you know, go to your parish priest, go to a, a learned person that you know, and ask the question, you know, what does this mean? What am I supposed to get out of this? Use the catechism, you know, while you're reading this document as well, or these documents as well. Uh, and if you want just one kind of good overview book that I recommend about the Second Vatican Council and all the documents of the council, I recommend Vatican II, The Crisis and the Promise from, by Alan Schreck. So Alan Schreck was a consultant on my EPIC program, He's a teacher at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and so he's written just a nice little short summary of each of the 16 major documents of the council, what they teach, the highlights of them, uh, and then gives you a little bit of information about you know, the backstory to the council and then how the council has, has or has not been implemented in the church um, since its closure. So I highly recommend this work. I'll pass this around as well if you're interested in that. So ultimately we know that the implementation of the Second Vatican Council, remember as I mentioned last week we talked about the Council of Trent, that it takes, in the history of the Church, it takes um, usually a major pope or you know, a very significant pope to implement the decrees of a council, that they never really take root in the life of the Church until someone comes along and, and kind of implements them in the life of the Church. And Paul VI tried to begin the implementation of the Second Vatican Council, and he met with different success. He met with... Uh, in the eastern part of the world, for example, in Eastern Europe and in Africa and Asia, he met with great success. In the western part of the world, the United States and uh, Western Europe, not so much. The implementation of the council was a little was a little bit different uh, in the western world than it was in the eastern world for a whole lot of different reasons. And most of us have kind of suffered through some of the um, ill effects of the... Uh, you know, personal agendas pursued by others to try to implement what they thought the council actually, what the council taught instead of actually realizing what the council did teach. So there was some difference in implementation throughout the world, but ultimately the council needs to be seen, as John Paul II saw it, as a gift, a great gift to the church by the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what he said. He said that the Second Vatican Council was a gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. And he encouraged us to read the documents, to study the documents. And he really called also the Second Vatican Council a compass that we need to utilize in order to understand where the faith and the church is going in this new millennium. He wrote this He said, I feel more than ever in duty bound to point to the council as the great grace bestowed on the church in the 20th century. There we find a sure compass by which to take our bearings in the century now beginning. So if we want to really know where we're going as a church or where we should be going, what we should be doing, our late Holy Father is saying we need to read and understand and study the documents of the Second Vatican Council. So again, I highly encourage you all to do that. So that takes us to our last time period, the threshold of hope, and really which is the pontificate of John Paul II to our present day. Now there's many, many things we could say about John Paul II and his pontificate, uh, most of us, you know, live through all of his pontificate. Uh, uh, he's a fantastic, wonderful man, a holy man, a man who inspired not only Catholics but also those who were not Catholic. And he really had as his main kind of goal and focus of his pontificate is to build up a civilization of love and a culture of life. And that really was what he wanted to try to accomplish, and I think he put us on the path of doing that of encouraging us to, to bring that forth into the modern world. He was a man who his first words from from the balcony of St. Peter's when he was elected pope was to was be not afraid, and he really embodied those words throughout his pontificate. Whether it was uh, telling the youth of the world to be not afraid, to love Jesus, to embrace him, to embrace the church, to be different than your peers through all the different world youth days that he that he first started and, and attended, whether he uttered the phrase be not or whether he embodied that phrase be not afraid in his dealings with the Soviet Union. And his intimate uh, role in the downfall of of that evil institution of communism, that evil empire, he you know said, "Be not afraid in terms of evangelizing the world, of going forth and traveling throughout the world." He went over on over a hundred apostolic trips, you know, a pope who traveled throughout the world to spread the message of Jesus Christ, you know. And I mentioned, I think, a couple of times ago that that um, you know back in the 11th century, when Pope Urban II left Rome and traveled through the south of France, that how, what a unique thing that was. Most people never saw their bishop, let alone a, a pope. You know, we grew up in a time when we, you know, the pope is traveling all over the place, and we can click on CNN and see him land here and there and everywhere, and it, you know, it might not resonate with us how big of a deal that really is and how a recent thing it really is for a pope to do that. Uh, he really had, I think, five main themes throughout his pontificate. One was obviously the new evangelization, the spreading of the gospel, the implementation of the Second Vatican Council, as I've mentioned, he focused also on a theology and teaching of love and marriage. You know, many of us have commonly know this as the theology of the body. His catechesis on the body, where he really wanted to help, uh, you know, pave a, a sure theological foundation. For a greater understanding of the the dignity of the human body, the dignity of the sacrament of marriage, and the dignity of the marital act within marriage, so fantastic writings, uh, which many people are, are unpacking and are, are continue to write about and study, and will for a very long period of time. He also wanted to prepare the church for the third millennium, the coming of the new millennium, which we're currently in, and he did that during the course of his pontificate. And also, too, he really wanted to highlight one of the major themes of the Second Vatican Council, which is this universal call to holiness. One of the chapters in Lumen Gentium, the document on the church from the Second Vatican Council, talks about how all of us, as baptized Christians, have a vocation to holiness. Holiness is not something reserved just for priests and religious. It's something that all of us are called to embrace and to embody in our daily lives. We all are called to be, and really to utter the words of John the Baptist in the Gospel, where John the Baptist says, "He must increase, and I must decrease." All right? That's our fundamental vocation. Is that when we're to love Jesus and be filled with sacramental grace, so that when people come into contact with us, they don't see us, they see Jesus through us. That's exceptionally easy to do, right? Everybody can do that. Go ahead and raise your hands. no, obviously, it's not. It's not easy to do. But it can be done, and it should be done, and that's our vocation, that's our calling. And so he really encouraged us to do that. And one of the ways he did encourage us to do that is he gave us examples from a wide spectrum of people by beatifying over uh, 1,300 people, by canonizing over almost 500 people, you know, from all different kinds of ways of life, you know, religious, priests, lay people, married people even. Uh, he gave us these uh, saints as examples so we can turn to someone and turn to them and ask them for our, their help in order for us to live the life that we are called to live. Obviously, he had a huge impact on the world in his pontificate. He really, I think, in a certain sense, restored prestige and honor to the papacy. Uh, like I mentioned before, even non-Catholics loved the man, continued to revere his memory. So a fantastic man. I think one day he will be considered among the great popes in the history of the Church. So right now there's three, and he will hopefully one day be the fourth. So we come to the end of our time here. Obviously, we have the pontificate presently of of Benedict XVI, a fantastic and wonderful man who spent a good amount of of his life working with John Paul II in Rome to bring forth all these major themes that we just talked about. So a man who will will continue to guide the Church, hopefully for a a number of years, uh, and a man that we should thank definitely the Holy Spirit for granting and giving to us during this time in Church history. So we come to the end of our time together in, in these four parts, and hopefully as a result of these thousand years that we've gone through over the last month, that um, which was kind of rapid, very fast. But hopefully we've learned a lot. We've learned you know, that, that the history of the church, the church has gone through many, many different things uh, and has suffered through many different periods of time, and she's still here. And obviously that's because of the church, who the church, what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. The church is, is also animated and guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit. And hopefully our study of the history of the church not only emboldens us to have a greater sense of our identity as Catholics emboldens us to fulfill our baptismal vocation to go forth and to, to present Christ to the world. But it also helps us grow deeper in our relationship with the Holy Spirit that we can grow in our love and appreciation for him uh, and for God as a whole. So I want to thank you all so much. And I know it's, as our tradition, we'll take a short little break here and then we'll come back for questions. Thank you again. Thank you,
1: Steve. Okay, at this point is where normally our favorite subdeacon gets up to make a couple of announcements and let you know that the Q&A session is coming up soon. Uh, I think he and Linda have a more pressing engagement right now. <laughs> so if you would, please, could you join me in a prayer to our Holy Mother on behalf of Linda that Mary might intercede for her and bless her in this moment of her motherhood. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you. A wonderful series. A a four-part series as we went through the second millennium. We're so grateful that Steve was able to come and and spend this time with us and look forward to a series on the third millennium, too. It might be a little while for that one. Uh, if you enjoyed this and want to get more in-depth on the history of Our Catholic Church and how it is here to protect us and guide us through this life and into the next one, back in the back of the room is the, uh, Steve's epic series that's available, or you can go to his website, which is OurCatholicHistory.com. And I haven't heard anybody be able to stump Steve with any questions, so hope <laughs> hoping we get any oh, good ones tonight.
2: Now that you set me up, yeah, now, <laughs> now it's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Questions, anyone? Questions earlier part of the 20th century was pretty horrific however now we are in a period where the small wars mm-hmm. if you start counting um it, i mean it didn't really stop over world war ii we had korea right. got vietnam yep. and now we have the current wars mm-hmm. and how do you put a twist on those i mean well, yeah well i mean it's you know obviously warfare has been around since you know can't enable. I mean, it, it's been around for, for an obviously long period of time. It's the it's result of the fall. We're still going to see warfare you know, until probably the end, of the, you know, the end of the world. When Christ comes again, then we'll have peace. But I, I highlight you know, the First World War and Second World War just because of the horrific nature. this the extent of it. And because of the, the really those wars, I mean, many different reasons for why those wars happened. But in particular, the Second World War came about really because of the result of these very evil political ideologies. Um, which, for the most part, have thankfully you know, disappeared from our world. Um, but there are obviously there's still communist countries around. You know, I mean, if you if you want to look at it from one spiritual perspective, I mean, there's the story of Leo the Thirteenth, you know, Pope in Rome, who gave us the Saint Michael prayer. Who, at the end of the 19th century, had a vision. You know, of of Christ and Satan. Christ and Satan were arguing or talking, and as Saint Leo or as Leo mentions. You know, Satan basically said he wanted one century with which to do his worst, so to speak, and uh, and he was, you know, given this the, the century upcoming, the 20th century. So there's there's from a spiritual perspective, you could point to that and say that the vision of Saint Leo, you know, kind of covers that and shows that that's really what happened during the second. I mean, it was really demonic the things that were going on here in the second uh, during the the 20th century. So, I mean, I think although we still have different conflicts and wars and things throughout the world, obviously you know, hopefully the ferocity, the demonic ferocity of that has is, is waned for a lot of different reasons. But I mean, it's just important for us as Catholics to maintain, to recognize that, you know, the world is is not just the physical world. You know, there's a, there's a very real spiritual world that although we might not be able to see it most of the time, is still nonetheless extremely real. You know, in a certain sense we could say it's more real than this, than what we see and what we touch and what we can sense. So we just need to be aware of that and aware of the spiritual combat that exists. And that's why it's very important for us to maintain, you know, uh, our faith, maintain our ties to the church, and, and to participate in the sacraments. There were, uh, in, in the second millennium here, there's been a lot of challenges and, and dark periods that you've talked mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. in these last four weeks. Mm-hmm. What do you think was the, the, uh, the darkest of those times for the continued life of the church, mm-hmm. the Catholic church, and why and what got us through that? Mm, wow, that's 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 a that's a that's, a, that's an involved question. That's let me uh, let me take that for the record. No, um, not necessarily the darkest time, but the one that had the most profound influence on the church, which still affects the church in the world today. I would go back to the 16th century Protestant Revolution. I mean, I really think that that is that because not that up until that point, everything was obviously rosy or something in, in Christendom, because it wasn't. But But up until that point, you had, you know, a basic unity that existed, at least at some level of unity that existed in in Western society uh, and through the church that was then shattered. I mean, absolutely, just completely, 100% shattered. And so, and that's something that, you know, we still are dealing with uh, the effects of it today. You know, to the point that there's 33,000 some odd different denominations of Christians in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously not what Jesus wanted when he prayed, you know, I let Father, let them, you know, they need to be one, they need to be all united. So, um, so I think that's, the, that's the, the darkest time, so to speak. And it's not to say that obviously there wasn't reasons, as we talked about, for why the revolution, there were a lot of abuse and things we talked about in the church. Um, and the revolution happened, and it's, it's something we're still dealing with, and how do we get through that? I mean, I think we're seeing actually a lot of it um, kind of come around now. I think we're seeing, you know, with uh, what the Holy Father recently did for the Anglican Communion, allowed them, you know, the ability to to come in and maintain their tradition and the faith. Uh, I think that's one way in which we're kind of overturning what happened uh, in that dark time in the 16th century. You know, all the great Protestants who have, who since the Second Vatican Council really, who have come into the church, you know, and have converted people like Scott Hahn and others, you know, who have, uh, or people who have left the church and become Protestant and then come back to the church like Jeff Cavins, um, you know, fantastic men and, and women. Who are doing great things for the church, spreading the faith and in, in the world, and you know, um, are doing so. You know, I think because of the, sec- I really think because of the council, because of the outpouring of the Spirit, because of of the work that John the Twenty-third set the church on, continuing especially through the work of John Paul II. I mean, the fact that we had you know him, great holy man, wonderful man, for such a long period of time uh, during this millennium really implemented that council authentically, uh, and we're seeing the fruits of it now. You know, and we're going to see the fruits of it continue and continue. I think this is going to change. I think ultimately we're going to get to the point you know, where, um, and I think a lot of people are there, it's just a matter of thinking about it and making the decision, is that you, come, you really have to recognize that you know, it's the Catholic Church. Maybe you can look at the Orthodox Church, but it's, you know, it's the Catholic Church is really the one that ha- can trace its origins all the way back to the apostolic times. It's the one where you look at the writings of the, whole, of the early church fathers. are you know, They believe what we believe. You know, so if you're going to be Christian, why, why not be Catholic? In essence,
0: so. Great question. Uh, you'd mentioned earlier about, correct me if I'm wrong, but fraudulent baptismal certificates for Jews.
2: Yeah, know. yeah, yeah, fake baptismal certificates. Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, they saved lives, but isn't that somewhat of a moral conundrum if they're if they're fake, if they're fraudulent, if they're if they're not real?
2: It's, what is what's the, you said? Is what it, is, isn't you... it
0: somewhat of a moral conundrum? I mean, oh, oh, although they
2: saved, they saved yeah,
1: lives, yeah. but they were
2: fake. Yeah, no, there's I, there's no more. It's just a piece of paper. I mean, it's no, there's no moral conundrum because I mean, the moral conundrum could come in if you if the church said, well, will go ahead and baptize them, but you know, it's not really real. We'll, we'll get some kind of paper that says this, although we, you went through the motions and you you had the water, that's not you know a real baptism or something like that." I mean, that would be the, that would be an issue. I mean, obviously a huge moral issue if that was to occur, if that did occur, but it didn't. All it was was a paper saying this person was baptized. I mean, I know you 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 could say that it's is that, is that kind of lying. Um, you know, I mean, you it, it really in a certain sense, if you look at, you know, the definition of lying in the catechism, it's, it's, you know, withholding information from people who are supposed to have the information. That's really what lying is. So is, does a Nazi official need to really know whether this Jew is baptized or not? No. I think most of us would argue, no, that, that Nazi official does not need to know. So I don't think there's a moral issue there. I mean, I, I understand your point, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a good question, but... Um, no, obviously the, the Pope didn't see a problem with it, um, you know, and, and the, the Church as a whole didn't see a problem with it. And I think for those reasons, so, but yeah, fantastic. Okay, our last question. Um, it, it seems
0: as though Europe never really, or has not yet recovered from the uh, uh, from the terrors mm-hmm. of the of the wars of the century, of mm-hmm. the 19th century, 20th century. Um, I see hope as you just presented it, but. It really feels as though they've never just really recovered economically or culturally or, I guess, even demographically.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, Europe has recovered economically, I think, most definitely from the effects of the Second World War. I mean, there might be, you know, the whole Western world is going through some level of financial crisis you know, now, presently. But, no, definitely they recovered economically. Now, culturally, uh, politically, I would say, too, they did. But but even culturally or even religiously, you know, have they recovered. Um, not necessarily. I mean, really, the, one of the effects of the Enlightenment is this—you know—this this, uh, attachment to secularism, this, this embracing of moral relativism, and that's an impact of our culture. That's a, it's a force of our culture, which unfortunately has become widespread in Europe today, and even in, in the United States to a certain extent. So, how do you overcome that? I mean, I think you do it like what John Paul II started with the Youth World Youth Days. I mean, he kind of bypassed a generation and went right to—although he didn't really—but you know, in a certain sense, he emphasized going right to the youth and. And talking to them. Because he recognized that, and the young people of today really are, they're, they fall into two, you read different sociological studies and different books on the, on the matter, but really they fall into two camps. There are those who are, if they're religious at all, they are really religious. Like they really want to practice their faith. They really want to know their faith. They're really attached to their faith. Uh, then the other grouping is, are those who are just massively indifferent. I mean, the vast majority. Not, not that they're, you know, really opposed necessarily to faith. They're just, you know, what's in it for me? It doesn't really give me anything. I don't, you know, it doesn't affect me at all, so I'm not really concerned. Because um, if you look at it, it's interesting. You look at some of the uh, kind of these dissident groups that grew up in the 60s and 70s, these groups that call, they still exist, you know, they call themselves Catholic, but they're really they're not Catholic because they espouse everything that's kind of contrary to the to church's teachings. Um, That's one of the things that they really are upset about currently, the old membership. The membership is because their membership is aging. And the younger people are not joining. And so the revolution that their parents or that their, you know, older people that kind of wanted to see happen in the church in the 60s and 70s, uh, they don't feel the same need to, to be attached to that same kind of movement. So it's really kind of fascinating that way. So I think you'll see that in Europe as well. I mean, you, you have, you know, a society that's really embraced secularism to such an extent that, that they've really put God kind of out of the picture as a whole. But I think we will see that begin to change because of the youth. The youth really will, they really have in many ways embraced the faith, embraced the church, the Catholic youth in particular. And I think they will be the ones who in the future kind of come to positions of power and authority in those countries and and change it. So I hope so. I mean, we all hope so. But there's a lot of other factors involved, obviously, in that. But let's let's pray that that does happen.
1: Steve, thanks a lot for this very informative series for us. Thank you. Please rise for Father Joseph's blessing.
0: Now, Lord, let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, Please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.